Just listen to a couple things he says. This is Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but, the, but on the inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. They, they had these heart issues. He goes on to say in another verse, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this is a major issue that we're not just teaching our children uh, to think in, in behavioral terms, in, in terms of outward acts, but in terms of the heart. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. In addition, Jesus said that the greatest commandment wasn't don't commit murder. And that seems like a big one, right? Uh, shouldn't we just teach our kids not to commit murder, not to lie, not to steal? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And this is what our kids need to understand. I mean, if, if they don't understand from the heart what it is to love God, they'll be missing the whole picture. So we will be doing them a, a great favor by, by helping them understand their hearts. But we do run into another problem, and I'll, I'll be just upfront about it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. That's the next roadblock we run into, is not only uh, do, we, do we have wicked hearts, but we have hearts that deceive us and don't want us to see the truth. And that's, that's true for our children. They are born into this world with desperately sick, deceitful hearts. And so there's this problem. What, what do we do? How, how do we help our children to understand heart issues if they have these deceitful hearts? Well, the answer is that we need to use God's Word to show children heart issues. Right? You think about Hebrews uh, 4.12. It talks about how, you know, the, the Word of God is a double-edged sword. It's living and active. It does all these things. And it, the verse ends by saying, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It, it reveals the thoughts and attitudes of, of the heart to us when, when we're using scripture. James 1, 23 through 25, I'm not going to read those, but it tells us that, that reading scripture is like looking into a mirror, that, that it shows us who we really are on the inside. And so I would just tell you as parents, use God's word uh, to, to talk with your children about things at the heart level. Now I would say um, it's not best probably to do this when your child is just in the middle of, you know, doing something wrong. Hey, this is all coming out of your evil, wicked heart. You know, that, that's not really the, the opportune time to teach them about the heart, at least not at first. And so you want to do this at, at non-confrontational times, just normal times. A good one, by the way, would be family worship, which we talked about last week. You're already looking at God's Word. You're already, uh, you know, talking about God's Word and praying and so what we would do 
parents is we would, uh, you know, think about it. Okay, so what, what verses are we going to read tonight and talk about? And what you don't want to do is just, just read through those and take them at, at just face value at the most shallow behavioral level. See there, Jesus says not to lie. Jesus says not to murder. That, that's, that's not the point. What we need to do is in those times, show them, hey, here is the heart behind what's going on in these verses. And so we, we, we talk to our children about these things. We talk to them uh, about things like pride. This is an inward thing. Jealousy anger, selfishness, lust, revenge, fear of man. And these things are literally all over the Bible. I'm telling you, every single passage, I would say, you, you could look at it and dissect it and bring it to the heart level. And that's something that we really as parents need to get good at doing so that we can show that to our children and, you know, I think another good thing to do would be uh, we can say, okay, so here is this, this New Testament command, but now we'll talk about the heart behind it. And we could say, you know what, I can actually think of an example in the uh, Old Testament, maybe, you know, where, where this played out. And we can see their, the people's hearts put on display. And th these are just practical things I want to give you uh, to, to do this. And I would say, Again, so be prepared, but then, you know, ask them questions. Get, get them engaged in the conversation. Uh, you know, uh, say, say do you see how, how sometimes in your life you, you do things and you, you know that your motivation uh, was wrong? You know, te teach them to think about motives and intentions and desires, not just the behavior, not just the outward action. And of course, we always bring that back to the cross of Jesus Christ and this great, powerful God that can actually change the heart and, and cleanse the heart. I have more examples for you here, but I, I'm just going to end up going too long. I want to tell you what the result of this will be, okay? The result will be you'll do this a few times and nothing will happen. Nothing will be different about your child. They still won't understand the heart, uh, but that's not what this is about. You're not looking for immediate change. What you are looking for is, is hundreds of conversations over the years uh, where you're maybe not just in family worship, but you get better and better at talking about it with your child about these heart issues. And hundreds and hundreds of conversations with your child will begin to give you this, this foundation with which you can speak to your child at the heart level. And so that means even at these confrontational times later, you could say, hey, do, do you see that the way that you were mean to your sister wasn't just about her annoying you. It, it was about you being selfish with your things. It was about you uh, not, not having a kind and generous heart. Do, do you see that, that maybe you coming home late uh, for, after your curfew or whatever, it isn't just uh, that, that you, you forgot the time. Maybe it's that you, you don't really have, have this respect and honor for your parents and, and the, the rules we give you that, you know, and, and God's told you to, to obey. And, you know, we, we help them think through these things at a heart level. And the ultimate result, the ultimate goal is that over time, over, again, hundreds and hundreds of these conversations, they begin to come to these conclusions on their own. They become self-conscious, self-aware at the level of, of motives and heart and intentions. And so what you would maybe begin to see is, is they maybe come to you and say, yeah, um, I, this, this is what happened at school, and I, and I see that I was just being proud when I did that, you know? 
It wasn't that I had to do the thing they triple dog dared me to do, right? It was that I was proud and I didn't want to look stupid for not doing the thing they dared me to do. And so, Dad, I, I sinned in that way. And, and I sinned because of my pride. And so, God, Dad, would you pray with me about my pride? I mean, these, these are conversations that, that it takes time. You may not believe me that this really happens, but um, I, I really have friends with relatively young kids that, that come to them and say these things uh, to their parents. And I'm just like, what was that? That kid knows his heart better than I do, you know? And, and I'm like, how, does that, how do you do that? And they say, well, we, we just as, as long as we've been growing them up, we've been not just looking at the outward behavior, we've been looking at the heart. Because, again, your children, and you, by the way, your children have a heart problem. Your children have a heart problem, and they are deceived about that. And we need God's Word. We need guides uh, to help us to see our heart and to lead us to the cross, the thing that can change our hearts. So I hope that is a helpful uh, little tidbit for you. Um, make it your hobby to, to look in God's Word and, and, and uncover not just the outward acts, uh, but the heart motives behind it. And, and use that to look at your own life and, and use that to help your children to see their own hearts. And my prayer is, of, of course, that God would not only save our children, but, but sanctify our children over the long haul and, and grow them more and more into the likeness of Christ and then lead them out to share the gospel. We have a great commission to fulfill, and uh, I pray that it will be our children that finish that. Well, let's pray for that. I, I realize, again, these things are, are difficult. <laughs> we might be embarrassed to talk about these things with our kids, but that is why it is so important that we actually do it. It shows how badly we need it. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that uh, our issues are not simple. Our issues are not only outward, behavioral ones, and neither are those of our children. We all have heart issues. And so, God, I pray that you would give the parents in this room the desire to teach their kids about heart matters. God, I pray that you would give them wisdom to, to when they see their child disobey, that they see behind just the behavior and see the heart motives. And God, I pray that as they study your word, they can see past the outward behaviors and, and see the heart motives. And God, that they would teach those things to their children. God, I pray that they don't only hear about these things from the pulpit or from their Sunday school class. God, I want them to hear them from their parents who have thousands more opportunities than I will ever have to speak into their children's lives. God, let us know our hearts so that you can change them. And God, we invite you to do that. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right. We turn now back to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been here the past couple of weeks. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And we are continuing, obviously, in our, our series on unity here in this book of Ephesians. It, it by the way, is, is coming to a close, this, this uh I'll probably do next week, and I think that will be our final week looking at unity. Then we'll move into Easter and move back into Genesis, I think, unless God leads me otherwise, which happens. But that's where we're at. We are studying about unity once again. This is 
the unity that Christ has purchased that is supposed to exist among believers. And we are to strive, we are to be eager for experiencing this unity with one another. So Christ has purchased it, but we have to strive to experience this unity in our families, with our, our friends that are Christians, and even with our church. And we've been saying most recently, just over the past several weeks, that the greatest training, the greatest uh, shaping grounds for unity is in our very own homes, our very own families. Because what happens in our homes does not stay in our homes, right? There's that saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's all a lie, by the way. But I will say this is definitely not true with our homes. You might think, hey, we close our doors, we close our garage door, we close the shades, and what happens in our home stays in our home. It won't affect other people. It absolutely will. What happens in your home will not stay in your home because the kinds of people you become inside of your home, the kinds of people your spouse, the kinds of person your spouse becomes inside of your home, the kinds of people your children become inside of your home, is the same type of person they will be outside of the home, right? It only makes sense that the, the, the attitudes and the ways that we treat one another in our families, the patterns we put in place, these habits, will inevitably affect the patterns and the attitudes and the ways we treat people outside of our homes. And I'll tell you, uh, I've just been talking to people about this lately, just as, as we've been, you know, studying this section of Ephesians, and it's been really encouraging that, that so many of you that I've talked to have said, what, what you're saying that in Ephesians, what Ephesians is telling us about, about unity and about where this is the place where we really need to put our work in, they said, in my experience, it is absolutely true, and that they see it in Scripture as absolutely true. And so I know that there are a lot of you who are on board with me, that this is an area that we desperately need to work. And so I've been encouraged that, that God has us in the right place, working in the right areas in our homes. And so three weeks ago, we looked at unity in marriage, right? We said that marriage is supposed to be about God, that it's supposed to be about building up one another in the Lord, and it's supposed to be about serving one another. Two weeks ago, we looked at the responsibility of children to their parents, right? The child is to obey and honor their father and mother, that's their responsibility to parents, but we also looked at that that responsibility is actually a gracious gift from God because children, just like all of us, are born with sinful, wicked, foolish hearts. And, and, and so it's gracious that they're to obey their parents because their parents are there to guide them and to push them in the right direction. So I would say, by the way, if you were born into a, a, a family of faith, into a, a Christian family, you were given even greater grace that your parents were pushing you to the Lord at whatever degree they did that. Um, and it is, but children, it is a gracious gift even that we honor and obey our parents. And that is obedience to God, but it's a gift from God. Last week, we looked at the fact that, that parents— their, their responsibility, part of their responsibility, is to not provoke their children to anger. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And we looked at that, and we saw that there are, are many ways that we might provoke our children to anger, which, by the way, our, our children are going to get angry. That's not the problem. Our children are going to get angry at the rules we have and, and the, the discipline we enforce. But the problem is, is there are ways of parenting that we can treat our children in such a way that they get a long-term enduring bitterness and resentment toward their parents. And, and it's kind of weird because we're actually making it even harder for our children to obey and to honor their parents than it even already would be with their sinful heart. So it really makes no sense. And what we said was, the answer to that is, is that we need to parent from grace. We, we need to parent recognizing that we don't have the power to change our children. Because when you believe you have the power to change your child in and of yourself, you're going to throw a bunch of rules on them, you're going to throw a heavy hand on them, and you're going to throw harsh discipline on them, and that will provoke your child to long-term enduring anger. But then we said on the opposite side, there are some people who realize they don't have the power, but they see no option for power. They don't recognize the grace of God, so they don't parent their children really at all, at least not in areas that matter. And so that child grows up angry and resentful at their parent because they didn't even hardly give them a fighting chance at flourishing in this world, or flourishing spiritually. And so they are provoked to anger. And so what we said was that, yes, we need to recognize that we do not have the power to change our children, to, to even do the responsibility we have uh, toward our children, but that God will give us grace. We should be seeking God's grace, and we should be parenting from grace, because the parent that is seeking and receiving God's grace for parenting is the parent that is going to be a conduit of grace to their children. If we're receiving grace, we will be a conduit of grace to our children. And so those, those were just some foundational uh, realities <clears throat> for parenting and, and how to not provoke our children to anger. And we, we looked some at the second half of verse 4 as well, and I'll go ahead and read that, that passage for you. Um, if you want to read along with me, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to be focusing mainly on the second half of verse 4. But here we go. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that last part, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, is what we are primarily going to look at today. And we want to see if we can draw some, some basic principles out of this. Again, there's just no way we would be in a series for the rest of our lives if we were to look at every area of parenting. But I want to look at some of the primary, uh, most important principles that I believe God gives us for how we can bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer uh, before we go any further and ask God to bless this? Father God, 
we want more than anything to be people who live by your grace. That's true whether or not we have children. We want to be people who are continually seeking and receiving your grace, receiving your power to do all the things you've commanded, receiving your power to have our hearts more and more conformed into the heart of your Son. But God, for those of us who are parents, we do recognize that we have a a special responsibility to parent by your grace, to parent from your grace. And so God, would you help us to forsake our own power, to forsake our own fear of failure even, and to cling to the grace that you give us, to cling to the promises you give us, that you will be with us, that you will empower us to do all that you command. And God, as we parent from grace, as we are receiving that grace, would you show us what it looks like to then bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of you, God? God, help us to know just even a little more practically, just some guiding principles, Lord, that we can put over every area of our lives and especially of our parenting, God. Lord, I I pray that you would do this through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's what we're going to look at. What is it to bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord? I I admit that, that even when I read this verse the first few times before studying it too deeply uh, some years ago, really, but I, I had this understanding that, that what this meant to bring up our children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord, that what that meant was, okay, I need to occasionally, you know, just tell them about God, and then I need to, to you know, take my kids to church, make sure they're involved in that, you know, maybe make sure they get in Sunday school and small group and things like that, and that will be bringing them up uh, in the Lord, you know, that, that's kind of what I figured. And so, I, kind of as I think through this, I, I wonder— how many of you, like me, were, were, are, either one, more influenced by a cultural understanding of parenting than by a biblical understanding of parenting? How many of us are, are letting the, the world teach us how we should raise our children rather than the Bible? Because it, it may be tempting for some of us to think, okay, I'll make sure that my child ends up in the hands of a godly person, right? That, that this Awana worker, this Sunday school teacher, that maybe the pastor or youth leader, that that person, you know, can, can, can pour into them so that they know about God and they're brought up in the Lord. We might think, okay, I'll do more than that. I won't just completely make other people do it, you know. I'll pray before our meals. That way, you know, we're talking about God, we're talking to God, so that'll be good. We might even think, you know, I'll I'll do family worship. We'll we'll do what Jeff said, uh, Pastor Jeff said last week about we'll do family worship, we'll read the Bible, we'll, we'll pray together, we'll sing a song, you know, and that will be fulfilling my responsibility as a parent. Or maybe it won't even be as, as uh, you know, structured as that. 
maybe I'll be the amazing parent that occasionally, rarely, but occasionally seizes that teachable moment, right? We, we see this teachable moment, and we, we, we help them see God's Word, and we point them to the gospel. But what I want to say about those things is, while all of those are, are good at, at some level, they really are, and I hope you are doing those things, while all those are good, they simply are not enough. They, they aren't what we are commanded to do in Scripture. I'll give you uh, the, the, my first point here. This is in your uh, outline if you want to, to fill that in. The Bible gives us the impression that, number one, raising children is a life investment. It's a life investment. You could even add the word, if you wanted to, a whole life investment. A whole life investment. <clears throat> What I mean by this is what we will see in Scripture, what I'm going to show you in just a moment, is that raising children requires not just little bits and pieces, little, little moments of our time as parents, but the whole life of the parent. Raising our children spiritually uh, doesn't mean we're just involved in some parts of our children's lives, but we are involved and invested in all the parts of our children's lives lives. We should be doing life with our children and continually investing in their spiritual lives. Raising children is a life investment. Let me show you that <clears throat> from these verses. Again, these were things that, that even by principle I knew were true, but I was amazed the more I dug into these verses, or to, into this verse, the second half of a verse even, how much is here that this is a whole life investment into the whole life of a child? It says there, don't, don't bring, um, fathers, don't, uh, what is it, <laughs> provoke your children to anger, <clears throat> but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> what I want to point out to you is, is we need to dig into these words. So look at the word uh, bring them up, the words bring them up. In the Greek, uh, the words bring and up are actually one word. They're a compound word. It is ektrepho. So you have ektrepho autos, bring them up. Bring, I guess a, a literal translation would be bring up them um, in, in the Greek. But what we need to understand is this isn't just making sure our children, you know, are fed occasionally, have a, a, a roof over their heads, you know, just things like that. What this word means is, is to, to nourish up to maturity, to, to train up, to, to aid in development. That, that's what this word means, this ektrepho, this bring up. This, this is not just an occasional prayer. This is not uh, even just family worship. This is bringing them up. I want to show you more evidence for that, okay? Look at uh, chapter 5. You're, you're in Ephesians right now. Chapter 5, verse 29. This same word is used uh, in chapter 5, verse 29. This is actually the only other time, by the way, this compound word, ektrepho, is used. Trepho is used um, other times, but the same word is used right here, just a few verses before. This is what Paul says. He says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, ektrepho, and cherishes it. So, okay, we'll pause there for a moment. 
No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So that, that same word is that word nourish. And that's how we treat our own bodies. Uh, but it goes on to say something even more profound that will have a, a deep impact on the way that we bring up our children. Look, look, listen to what it says. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Paul is now telling us, parents, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Nourish your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And it is the same word that is used for the way that Christ brings up the church. That is Christians, individual Christians. The investment that Christ makes in you spiritually is the same way we are to make a spiritual investment in our children. Now let's think about it. What type of investment did Jesus Christ make? Well, we think about before his name was Jesus, you know, actually had that human name Jesus. He was God the Son, you know, and so the question would be, well, he, he could have just fathered us from afar, or, you know, uh, trained us up, rather, from afar, nourish, nourished us from afar, but is that what he did? No, if, if you understand the gospel, you recognize that Jesus did not stay far away from us. He, he came, he stepped down into our world. The eternal came into time. The, the, the creator stepped into creation. He, he came into the trenches with us. And he walked with, uh, with many men. We, they called them disciples. He walked with them and he taught them and he, he spoke with them. He came into our world. He got his hands dirty. But we know he did a lot more than get his hands dirty, didn't he? For our sake, to nourish us, to bring us up, he got his hands bloody. The eternal God creator steps into our world, not only gets his hands dirty, but bloody as he was crucified on a cross. There he took the punishment for our sins so that we could have salvation and we could have spiritual growth. And then we know that even after his resurrection, and then even 40 days later after the ascension, he goes to the right hand of the Father, he still did not leave us to ourselves, right? He said, I will send one. When I leave, that is the Holy Spirit. But we understand from Scripture over and over and over that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is in fact the presence of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they are the same person. I'm saying the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ. He bears witness to, he, he uh, exalts Christ in our hearts to bring us up to nurture us. Let me just show you this from Scripture. Matthew 28, 20, the Great Commission. And then Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? I'm with you always. I'm not leaving you guys to, to just try to figure out this life on your own. Matthew 18, 20. This is actually in the context of church discipline, but he says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus, the God of the universe, nourishes 
ektrepho, right? The same word that, that parents are to do to the children, to bring them up by getting his hands dirty and even getting his hands sacrificially bloody, by, by, by continually being a part of our lives, by continually pushing us on to growth. I mean, think about it. Any, any of you, do you ever uh, sin and feel conviction? That, that's Jesus. That, that's Jesus. That this Holy Spirit in you is pushing you to growth. Do any of you ever have an aha moment when you're reading Scripture? Do any of you ever have a moment where you're filled with joy as you're reading Scripture and you, you just know you, you, you grew right there? You grew. That's Jesus. That's him, him walking with you in this life. And what it tells us just a few verses later in chapter 6, verse 4, bring them up, ektrepho, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To bring up our children, to nourish our children, to develop our children is not something that we do from afar, something that we just orchestrate and, and, and hope it goes well. We don't just throw our kids a few Bible verses and hope that's enough, because that's not what God did with us. He got in the trenches with us, and we got to do the same with our children. We do life with our children, both, both physically and spiritually. We, we help our kids, uh, you know, in the hard times. We help them to understand how the gospel bears on that. We, we walk with our kids in the good times and help them to see how the gospel bears on that. We help them to have a Christian worldview that sees past just these, these outward things, but sees the spiritual behind them. But that only happens if we are walking with our children. By the way, the next thing we see in that verse, it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What it does not say is, teach your kids, you know, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline your kids and instruct them. You know, what it says is, bring them up, this nurture, this walking with them in in being immersed in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is an interactive way of spiritually shepherding our children, spiritually helping them and molding them and shaping them. Listen to Deuteronomy 6. If you want to turn there, you're welcome. Uh, but Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, it says this, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen here. You shall teach them diligently to, you, to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They shall, they, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Does that sound like a parent who sends their kid to Awana and says, I've done it. <laughs> I've brought them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Oh no, I've got it covered. We prayed before our meal. That sounds a little more invested, doesn't it? There, there's just so much here. It says that we teach them 
diligently, verse 7. When should we be doing this? Verse 8 says, or sorry, the, further in verse 7, it says that we should teach them diligently when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This is always. This is continually. That, that, that's just describing just pretty much everything we do in life. That's when we should be teaching them. Then it says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them uh, on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What that's saying is, when, when, when your kid is around you, they shouldn't be able to even avoid God. They should look at your face and see as frontlets between your eyes the commands and, and the, the works of the Lord. This is all-encompassing. This is investment. Our kids, everywhere they turn in our homes, should be learning about the Lord. This is what it's supposed to mean for us as parents. This spiritual nourishment of our children is not just some add-on. Well, I want to make sure that my kid is good at sports. I want to make sure they're well-educated. I want to make sure they're well-mannered. You want know, to make sure that they're, they're, they're physically fit or whatever. And then if we have time, I'll spiritually nourish them. No, that is legitimately backward. Of course, all those other things are important. If your kid can't read, they can't read the Bible. Uh, anyways, you, you can think that through. We need to parent our kids in these other ways. But the, the thing we're most, compare, uh, most commanded to do, most, our highest responsibility is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, we've got to get in the trenches of life with our kids. Parents, we've got to be willing to, we've got to be intentional about training our children up in the Lord, talking with them as we walk, as we drive, as we eat, whatever, talking with them about the Lord. Because we are supposed to be, remember we're supposed to be recipients of this grace of God. We're constantly coming to Him, drawing on His grace. And we are supposed to be looking for these opportunities to be conduits of God's grace to our children. That's what it is, to parent from grace, to receive God's grace so that we can pour it out on our children. And again, we remember that it won't be one or two conversations that, that, that makes a child the, the way that they should be or anything like that. It won't be a hundred conversations. You may have in your life tops like three conversations that really 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 made a difference in your life but past that your life is made up of a million different conversations of a million million different interactions and that's what it needs to be with us and our children we are looking for for number a million and one interaction with our child that would push them to the lord uh, proverbs 22 6 a, a popular verse Train up a child in the way he should go. Notice it doesn't say tell a child the way he should go. Train up a child in the way sh he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is not a promise. That is a proverb. That is a general principle that God generally uses parents who are parenting from grace to lead the children to grace. This, this may be a good time, actually, for me to say, parents, it is your responsibility to parent well, 
you are not responsible for everything your child does. If your kid uh, gets saved and, and, and becomes the most amazing Christian, it wasn't you. <laughs> it was God. It was His grace. If your kid sadly goes their own way, I hope you parented them well, and you, I'm sure you made mistakes. We all do, but at the end of the day, they, they will make their own decisions, and so it, that's not on you. We, we seek to, to put as few barriers in the way, right? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, and we seek to push them in the right way by God's grace as much as possible, and that's the second part of the verse, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we see there, raising children is a life investment. This is not just moments, teachable moments. It is a teachable life that we are continually, constantly teaching our children, investing in them spiritually. I know that that may seem elementary, but how many of us are doing it? How many of us are looking for ways to bring up, to nourish our children, to get in the trenches with our children spiritually? Raising children is a whole life investment. Now, there are a million different directions I could go from here. So what does it mean to invest in your child? Um, and I, I thought of a lot of them, wrote a lot of them. The power went out in our house last night and I lost them because um, <laughs> I did not save the file. But that's all right. I already knew which direction I was going to go. Uh, I'm just telling you, there, there are so many different ways. And I hope you guys talk together about these things and and push one another and think through these things. But number two in your notes is just what I see as, as one of the major ways, if not the most major way, that we will have this influence in, in bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So number two in your notes is raising children is a life of modeling. Raising children is a life of modeling. I'm not saying you have to learn how to walk the catwalk, I'm talking about being an example for your children. Raising children is a life investment in one of the primary ways you are, whether or not you like it, you are investing in your child is by the example you give them. Raising children is a life of modeling. Good or bad, better or worse, your children are watching you. Your children are going to imitate you. You know, I actually remember in my life just kind of a, a defining uh, thing that with my dad is uh, I remember watching him work around the house. You know, on Saturdays would usually be the day he'd get a lot of work done around the house. And just one thing always stuck out to me. It didn't matter if he was mowing the yard, raking the yard, doing the dishes, taking out the trash, whatever he was doing, my dad worked hard. I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I, I'm, I still look at him and, and am surprised by how hard he works. I, I even remember uh, times just specifically, uh, we would go in, in to where he works. He's a, a manager at a shop, at a print shop, and he would just pay us to, to help him do some things. And so he'd show us how to do it, and we'd be standing there for a long time doing it, making our little stack slowly go up. And then he'd get done with what he's doing, and he'd come help us. And I remember me and my brothers would try to race him but he would always, his, his stack would go up twice as fast as ours 
because he worked so hard. I mean, I'm serious. If you were to go to my dad's work today, you would say this guy doesn't just slowly walk from one task to another. He speed walks, and then he does that job quickly. And again, just even out raking the leaves, he, he, he's breaking a sweat. He's really raking, and he's doing it perfect. There are no leaves left behind. I tell you that one uh, in particular because it is still, when I am like out raking leaves, I still find myself, if I'm not breaking a sweat, I'm not raking. Like, I'm, I'm just not doing it right. And it's just so ingrained in me. <laughs> I, it's even a problem for me if I'm raking with another person because they are not a perfectionist like my dad was. And so I see all the leaves that they left behind, and I end up having to go behind them and, and rake up after them. I'm, I'm serious. This is, this is a real thing. It is just so ingrained in me because I watched my dad work hard and just naturally I said, you know what, I'm going to work hard like my dad. And so what I want to submit to you is I realize that's, that's silly, talking about raking leaves, but if that is true with a work ethic, with raking leaves and, and uh, collating uh, print stuff, how much more true is it and should it be with spiritual lives? I, I bet that a lot of you, uh, as your kids were growing up, you're like, man, that kid's got, got an attitude, you know? And then all of a sudden you realize, man, that sounds so familiar. The things that they're saying, the ways they're acting just sound so familiar. And all of a sudden you realize, that's me. That kid is me. <laughs> like the, the sins I see them committing, the attitudes that they have, that's me. Right? We, if you're a parent, you have seen this, that your child, whether or not you like it, imitates you. And this is not only experientially true, this is biblically true. I'll tell you just uh, a couple examples of this. You look at Ephesians 5.1. Ephesians 5.1. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is a pattern. That, so now we've been made Christians, and so now we imitate our Heavenly Father, God, as, as beloved children. We, we imitate Him. This is true not only, God, obviously, with our, our Heavenly Father, but with earthly fathers as well. I'm going to show you some biblical examples of this, and it might seem odd, because the guy that I see that was the best father in Scripture, earthly father in Scripture, had no biological children. So, the Apostle Paul, I think, was the greatest uh, earthly father to men, yet he had no biological children, and he really expected these people who he considered to be his children to imitate him. Let me show you this, just to show you I'm not making it up. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 17. Let's listen to how clear this pattern will be made. Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Let me read to you again uh, Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So Paul is using the exact same words. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then he says this, I urge you then, based on that, I urge you then, be imitators of me. It, it goes on even more. 
That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere, or teach them everywhere in every church. So we have Paul here saying, you are my beloved children. I'm, I'm teaching you these things. I'm telling you these things as my beloved children. And, and because of that, because I became your father in Christ Jesus, be imitators of me. And he's actually sending Timothy, his protege, to remind them of the way that Paul lived in Christ. Paul makes it very clear. He considered himself to be a father, and he was intentional about wanting them to imitate him. He says later in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, so this is in the same book, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So th that's his point. He's saying, I I'm imitating Christ. I'm uh, doing what Christ ha has taught me to do, and, and I want you to imitate me now because I am your, your, your spiritual father. Now, there are actually uh, five more examples of this. I'm not going to read all of them to you. Five more examples of Paul saying, either imitate me or he's saying, hey, you guys did imitate me. I'm just going to give you one more uh, that I just think is so interesting. I was kind of blown away by how good the biblical support was for this point. Second um, Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 9. Paul was so intentional, intentional about this. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Listen to this. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul had the right. He's talking about receiving support from the church rather than having to work himself. He's saying, it's not that I didn't have a right to receive support from you, but you know what? I went ahead and worked anyway. I toiled and I labored and I did that in front of you. Why? To leave an example for you to imitate. Paul was intentional about it, even though he didn't have to do it, because he knew that, that God commanded them to be working. Their problem was they were just waiting for uh, Christ to return. So they're like, well, we're not even going to work anymore. You can read it in context there. But Paul's saying that's not how God tells us to live. He tells us to work hard, to work diligently as unto the Lord. So he gave them an example, even though he didn't have to. Paul understood that one of the main ways to teach them, to, to train them up in the Lord— to spiritually grow them was to leave them an example of godliness to follow. Now, I'm not saying uh, share the gospel, use words if necessary. No, Paul talked all the time. He wrote all the time. He taught them all the time, right? Just like a father should teach their child all the time. But then he did more. He left them an example of godliness, uh, of spiritual fervor for them to follow. Parents, if this was true for Paul, who did not actually have any biological children, how much more true should it be for us with our, our, our one to, to five children or whatever? You know, how much more true should it be for us to be intentional about leaving an example for our children of what 
spirituality and godliness looks like. This is one of the main ways we will invest in our children's lives. I mean, you might say, I don't know that that's the way I want to do it. Uh, I'm making a terrible example, you know. I'm far more comfortable with the whole, you know, do as I say, not as I do method. I like that. Can I just do that? Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? No, it's not, by the way. Um, (laughs) There are two things I want to say to that real quick. To your fear of, of, of being an example to your children, you know, of being intentional about it. What's the alternative? They're watching you either way, okay? What sense does it make in a child's mind for you to say, this is the way that you should live your life? This is the way that you should love our God and then to live a completely different way? They'd say, well, my dad says that it's more blessed to give than to receive, but he's actually really stingy and greedy, so maybe it's not true that it's more blessed to give than to receive. My dad says to love your enemies, but I see that when someone makes him mad, he he fires back at them. Maybe that's the way we should live. Maybe it's not what we should do to to love our enemies. Maybe it's not (laughs) that important to go to church because I see that my dad skips it for every little thing that comes along. I mean, you just think about all these different examples we are setting. That is the alternative to being intentional about leaving a godly, spiritual example for our children to follow. There, there is no opt-out. Oh, I just won't be an example. <laughs> that doesn't exist. And then secondly, and th- this I hope gets at the heart of it, I'm just going to give you a couple things here in a moment, but anything that you should do to leave an example for your child is things that you should already be doing if you are a Christian, Right? You want your child to be godly, well, you're afraid of leaving an example for them, but all you have to do to lead a godly example is be godly. At some level, it's the simplest thing in the world. (laughs) At another level, it's the most difficult thing in the world, and I get that because I am not perfectly godly. I'm not even close. I shouldn't have even thrown the word perfectly in that. Anyways, There is no alternative. We are going to be an example either way. And the things that you're to do are things that you're already supposed to be doing. Maybe this would actually be something to spur you on to greater godliness yourself as you attempt to be a good example for your children. So be intentional. That's that's kind of just a point there. But what is it that we should model for our children? Again, we could go on forever about this, but uh, I'll just give you a couple First, model joy in God. Model joy in God. I really, I mean, we could just park there the rest of the time. Your children need to see that God is not just some angry uh, uh, dictator up in the sky who's, who's waiting to get you if you, you mess up. They need to see that that God really is glorious, that he really is satisfying in your life, right? We we tell our children, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind. Well, you you seem to love everything but God, and I see that you go to church, but you know, you don't really seem to enjoy it. You you, you seem like you want to leave as quick as possible, 
Show joy in God. Our kids need to understand, by the way, that salvation is more than just getting out of hell. It is that you, you get this new life, this, this freedom from sin, this eternity with God. That should make us very, very joyful people. Our kids should know that obedience to God is more than just something that you should do. It's something that you get to do. Because we know that, that sin in our lives hurts our communion with God, but uh, obedience, with God, obedience to God helps our communion with Him. We receive joy in Him as we obey Him. We are abiding in Him as we are obeying Him. And we want to show that to our children. This is why I obey. Not because not I have to. Oh, I've got to put tithe in the plate. It's not like that. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, other examples, but I'm just going to move to a verse here that I, I love. This is the verse that we read in the Scripture reading this morning. Psalm 145, verse 4. Psalm 145, verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another, speaking of God's works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Again, what this doesn't say is one generation shall tell another of your mighty works. It says, shall commend. I looked into it. The, the Hebrew word there is uh, shavak, and it carries the meaning. You can look this stuff up. It carries the meaning of loudly praising or boasting in something. So we could legitimately translate that. One generation shall loudly praise your works to another. That sounds like a lot more than saying, yeah, God created everything. Yeah, he sent his son to die for us so we don't go to hell. Loudly praise, excited about this. Then the next part of the verse says, and shall declare your mighty acts. That word declare is nagad, and uh, it has the meaning of announcing, proclaiming, and expounding. They shall declare. We, so we could translate that whole verse. One generation shall loudly praise your works to another and shall proclaim and expound your mighty acts. Talking about God is so much more than just talking about facts. Like this is a science book. We're telling our kids about how a plant grows. We are talking about the God of glory, the God of the universe, our King, our Savior, our Lord. We should model joy in God. Joy specifically in God and His love for us in Christ Jesus. I'll just tell you in my own life, this is one of the main things that grabbed me when I had walked away from the Lord in my early 20s, is I, I met a man um, who, who was actually a pastor, and he, he seemed like he actually enjoyed getting to know God. He seemed like he actually thought that God was amazing and glorious. He seemed to actually think that obeying God was a joy, not a drudgery. He talked about the church, not like it was something he had to go to and a job he had to do, but as a great honor where he got to commune with fellow believers and with God. I mean, that, that really, it made such a lasting mark on me because I saw his joy. And parents, that's the way it has to be with us. The world, I don't know if you've realized this, is doing everything it can 
to distract your children, to show their, their affections something else to love, to take their attention and, and glue it to something else. I mean, you, you think about it, you got movies, sports, uh, material possessions, friends, dating, just, just all these different things, trying to be cool. I remember, <laughs> I don't worry about it so much anymore, but at one point that was a, a very big like, priority in my life. So parents, we desperately need to show our kids where true joy, true satisfaction is found. And that is in God. If we don't show our children that joy is found in God, they will certainly look for it somewhere else because they won't believe us that he's truly satisfying. Now, there's a, kind of a, a catch there, isn't there? It means you actually have to have joy and satisfaction find your value and meaning and purpose and that'll have to be true in you that's why i again we, we this is last week we got to be parenting from grace this isn't just a face we put on this is a god we run to and say god i don't think i'm modeling joy for my child joy in you and for my child the way that i should God, would you give it to me? I know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. God, give it to me. And then we seek it in His Word. We seek it in our small groups. We seek it in our church so that we can be that example to our children. Model joy in God. Secondly, this whole series that we've been doing, I don't even know what week we're on, probably like week 10 or something, I would guess. In that stream... I would say one of the most important things you can do for your child is model unity and love. Model unity and love. If you are a harsh, unloving, uncaring, unkind person, your child is probably going to be exactly the same. And I would even say, uh, ah, I'll, I'll wait on that. Your, your child is going to be the same. But the, same, the opposite is true. I'm, I kind of paint a dismal picture there, right? If you are loving and kind and caring and compassionate and sacrificial and, and forgiving and all these other things, your child will, will more than likely start to grab onto some of those things and be them as well. These are nothing more than, than what a Christian should be, right? This has been our whole series, is here is what a Christian should look like in the way that they relate to others. They should have this unity. I would say one of the most important places that this can start is in your marriage, right? This was the last thing we looked at in Ephesians. We went straight from marriage, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, and then now we come to children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Clearly, there is a, 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 a correlation between the, the unity that is taking place in the marital relationship and the unity that will be there in the family. So husbands, one of the greatest things you can do for your child is to love and sacrificially serve your wife well. I mean really, really well, not, not just sort of well. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a lot of love. That's a lot of sacrifice. That's a lot of service. Husbands, that is one of the greatest ways you can influence your children. Wives, one of the greatest ways you can influence your children 
in this unity is to submit to and respect your husband well. We just saw it. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This really will make a difference. Ephesians 5.33, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. These are key components to unity, and we need to model that well. I would say even the, the unity of the moment depends on it, but so does the unity that your child will experience one day. Your son is watching you for what a husband looks like. Your daughter is watching you for what a wife looks like. Help him, help her by being a godly example. So I would say we, we, we model that in the unity we have in our marriages. I would say this goes into the way that we speak with one another. These are things that we've just already been studying. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That is not a verse we practice just when we're in the church. <laughs> it doesn't mean that when we go to our homes behind closed doors, we can all of a sudden let loose our tongues. No, not at all. In fact, it is most important because our family, our household, is the training ground that that is where we speak to one another uh, in these ways, and we, we, we give grace. We, we build up rather than this corrupting talk. Let me just say this. You, you may already know it, but maybe you don't. Some of us get so angry, and I'm so guilty of this, by the way. Uh, we, we don't like the way our child is disrespecting us. We don't like the way our child is screaming at us or whatever, and so what do we do? We scream and disrespect our child to get them to stop. What, what are we teaching them? Here's what you do when someone does something you don't like. You scream at them. You disrespect them. You, you, you belittle them. You make them feel stupid. That, that's what you do. You intimidate them. That's what we have just taught our child. Instead of do only that is, which is good for building up as fits the occasion that it gives grace to those who hear. Now, that takes different forms when our child is, is disrespecting us or, or, you know, screaming at us or whatever, but it doesn't give us the, the, the whatever you'd say, I can't think of the word, it doesn't give us an out to go ahead and let this corrupting talk come out of our mouths. This goes further, by the way. I just think these are so important. This goes to how we talk with one another, but it also goes to how we talk about people outside of the house, Okay. When you come home from work, don't be bad-mouthing your boss or your coworkers. Your children are learning. That's, that's still corrupt talk. You're still slandering those people at work. They're learning. This is what you do behind people's backs. You come home and you talk about them if you don't like them. Husbands, do not talk bad about your wives and vice versa. <laughs> don't, don't bash your wife for something that she did to, to your kids. That, that's, that's silly. Why would you do that? Don't come home from church saying how much that person annoys you. I'm not saying you can never talk to your kids about how someone treated you badly, but there's a difference between slandering someone and just talking through what's going on. There's a big difference. Our children are learning patterns of how to talk with one another, how to talk about one another, and, and even talk about people outside the church. All right, so we've got marriage, we've got um, <clears throat> what was that? How to speak with one another. I'd say next, speak truth, not lies. 
We see that Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. These are all passages in a context of unity. And so show your kids that a white lie, a half lie, is a whole lie. Okay? Don't, don't go telling white lies. Show your kids that even to embellish the facts, to maybe make yourself look good or to make yourself uh, not look bad or whatever, teach them that that is dishonest. Teach them that even when it costs you, even when you could have gotten out of something, you still tell the truth because it is always worth telling the truth. Do not tell lies in your home. I would say rein in your emotions and don't let your emotions control your reactions. These things just happen in the home. And I'm preaching to myself up here. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, rein in my emotions and don't let them control my reactions. Uh, Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the question is, are our, are our children learning kindness and gentleness, or are they learning anger and wrath from you? Are, are they learning how to forgive people, or how to grow continually more bitter at people? As a parent, you have the prime opportunity to teach your child in all these ways. We just take that last example what it looks like to forgive another person who has wronged you. What, what it looks like to, to offer forgiveness or even seek forgiveness if needed. You have an opportunity uh, like, like no one else does in that child's life to teach them what it is to love your enemies and bless those who curse you and to do good to those who, who even in this instance, may, may annoy you. Show your kid that. that that's supernatural love model that for them. Parents, whether or not we like it, we have the greatest influence on our children's lives, and I honestly hope that that's true because we're actually investing in their lives. We're around them enough where we're speaking to them, you know, interacting with them enough to actually have an impact, but they are watching you at the very least. Are you training them up in the Lord or in the ways of the world? What have we learned today? It is more than just momentary, uh, occasional times of training our children. It is a whole life investment in our children. And one of the main ways we invest is by being a godly example for them. And that means that we need to be godly ourselves. We need to parent from grace. We need to seek grace and be receiving grace. So I challenge you as we take this communion here in a moment to go ahead and start that process, to, to, to ask for forgiveness where you're failing, even in your own spiritual life, knowing that you're being a, a bad uh, example for your children, to thank God where you're doing well, to ask God for more grace. Let's pray. Father God, I recognize that there is not a person in this room that is a parent that is not failing at some level at this. 
And so, God, we ask for more grace. We ask that you would help us to rely on you more. We ask that you would help us to find and show more joy in you, Lord. We ask that you would help us to model unity and love in our families and for our families. God, only you can do this. And that's why I pray for your power. I pray for the power of repentance. I pray for the power of obedience in our lives. And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.